and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 75. Today is Sunday, January the 1st, 2017. Happy New Year to all my listeners around the world. And I wish you all to be happy by making other people happy. That's the most important thing, I think. And today's guest is an American organist, Dr. Jesse Eschbach, who is a world-renowned expert on the French organ culture in general and Aristide Kavayakol's organs in particular. Dr. Eschbach is a graduate of the University of Michigan, where he was a student of Robert Glasgow. He completed his education during a five-year residence in Paris as a student of Marie-Claire Alain and Marie-Madeleine Durflet. Since 1986, Dr. Eschbach has served on the faculty of the University of North Texas as the full-time professor of organ. Dr. Eschbach has several CDs to his credit. Released in 2003 it was his 800-plus page book detailing the original stop lists of the majority of organs constructed by Aristide Cavayacol. Due to focal dystonia in the right hand, his career was sidetracked for more than 10 years, but due to the efforts of Dorothy Taubman and Sheila Page, he has begun resuming his performance career. In this conversation, we talk about Dr. Eschbach's research on the stop lists of Cavayacol's organs. Let's go to the show. Dr. Jesse, I'm so delighted uh, we're finally having this conversation about the topic that is so, so fascinating to many organists and uh, uh, lovers of organ music around the world, namely uh, stop, lists, stop lists and specifications of Cavayacol, which is your tremendous expertise. Thank you so much for your time and generosity of sharing ideas today and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity to talk about something that uh, has fascinated me since I first began to visit France uh, many years ago. Right. Uh, we cannot even imagine uh, French organ culture uh, without uh, uh, talking about uh, Cavayacol, the great Aristide Cavayacol, right? Um, of course, there were uh, organ builders before him and after him, but he is like a, like Alpha and, and Omega, right? Like, uh, like Bach in music, probably. And Aristide Cavayacol is in organ building, at least in France, don't you think? Oh, I, I absolutely concur with that. Uh, the history of, of uh, French organ building and organ building in general was so dramatically uh, affected and influenced by all of his contributions. Um, there are those who say in our profession that he was the greatest organ builder of all times. Sometimes that's a little bit difficult to sustain because, of course, uh, style uh so different between different periods and different nationalities that it's it's like comparing apples and oranges but certainly in his time and even today he was a, a herculean figure 
Yes, and to think that uh, how it all started right with uh, with one of the uh, greatest um, specifications of all time, probably uh, most ambitious, right? Uh, Saint Denis, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he even uh, didn't have a proper workshop set up at that time. Um, can you t- elaborate a little bit about that story and uh, how it all started with Cavoye uh, Col? Yes, well, uh, of course, Saint-Denis was uh, officially inaugurated in September of 1841, and it was an organ that was conceived uh, very directly in the uh, what we call today the post-classical style in France. It was a monumental, it is, because of course it still uh, exists and still plays, not exactly as it was heard in 1841, but with relatively few modifications. So it was it was conceived uh, as a 32 foot uh, organ, meaning that the lowest uh, principal stop, the mont in the organ, was a 32 foot mont uh, playing from the cantor, and um, it was a stop list which at once was very much uh, compatible with post classical uh, playing, post classical. Uh, uh, composition and improvisation, and uh, also somewhat somewhat forward-looking. And of course, um, part of the magic at Saint-Denis, um, this was an organ that was going to make or break anyone's career, but especially an unheard-of organ builder from Toulouse, a young man of, uh, what, in his, in his 30s at this point. Um, in fact, he was 30 when, when that organ was finished. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an organ that was going to make or break uh, a career, and it almost broke him. It wasn't until the very end of the project that Mr. Barker from England came across and presented him with his, his marvelous pneumatic lever. Without that pneumatic lever, the organ would have been virtually unplayable, at least as it was intended to be played. So it was a near miss. It was a very, very near miss for the young man, but uh, it put him on the map. It, it revolutionized everything. Yes, it was a groundbreaking work, uh, definitely. And he was so, uh, so ahead of his time in his vision, in his thinking. I'm just wondering whether he got this idea of expanding, uh, expanding the compasses of, of of all the divisions, right? And uh, and the pe- uh, pedal uh, pedal work, of course, also, and everything, and the stops, also. Uh, was he alone in this thinking, or he, did he collaborated with? For example, organists, uh, and with this discussion, it became more of an idea of Saint Denis. Well, of course, he was very influenced by some of the younger organists uh, of the time, notably Lefebvre, and he worked very, very closely with Lefebvre. In fact, the year after Saint Denis, moving forward to 1842, the next major. Uh, project uh, was the rebuild of the organ at Saint-Roch in Paris, where the, the Le Fibio-Vedi family had uh, played for many years. And so he was he was working uh, very, very closely with that, with that particular organist. Um, some of the innovations, of course, bothered the really conservative faction uh, in France, notably D'Anjou. It also bothered a number of the conservative consultants, uh, Amel, for instance, the, the great uh, theorist uh, Amel, who updated the Dombe Dos, uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Amel was, was somewhat put off by some of the innovations that he saw creeping into French organ building through, through RST Cabernet Cole. But um, uh, eventually, uh, the, the direction of Cabernet Cole was, um, began to be uh, well viewed. And I hate to say that he won a battle, but um, his, his ideas pretty much uh, prevailed. Right, of course. Um, uh, that's it's good that he had this um, this um, sort of say friend in in, in spirit, uh, uh, basically organist and composer and brilliant improviser, right? Lefebvre uh, um, Valli, who who his who's virtuoso playing fascinated in Parisian public, uh, right, uh, at the time. And, oh, and even today we're, we're playing his compositions and is, cannot stop marveling about his um, creativity, how he uses the theme, thematic material uh, in, in a popular way, fashionable, but also very, very uh, artistically pleasing way. It's not a very um, uh, sort of uh, shallow music. No, it's artistically very... A very um, s- uh, s- sort of uh, solemn music and um, inte- inte- uh, with integrity music, I would say. Don't you think? Well, I think yes. I think it's very picturesque. I think it's it's uh, absolutely in in sync with with the time. Um, thunderstorm pieces, of course. He excelled at that genre of music, and that had been in the wind. Uh, Le simply did not invent that genre at all. It had been in the wind for a very, very long time. They were popular in the 18th century. And uh, Vélie simply uh, brought that genre to, um, shall we say, a level of of, uh, of perfection. And, of course, his best-known pieces come to us from the Saint-Sulpice era. Uh, After 1863, he published a number of volumes of L'Organisme Moderne, and uh, we find uh, all of these ideas coming together. Uh, we find the famous uh, Saint Pastoral for uh, a midnight mass, uh, Christmas Eve midnight mass. That's perhaps one of his best-known thunderstorm pieces. In fact, my doctoral students just examined it uh, a few weeks ago. And um, I do hear it played from time to time in this country. Uh, I heard Jeanette Bichel play it at Indiana uh, mm-hmm. just a few years ago. And so it's uh, amazing that a few years ago, say 20 years ago, this, this music wouldn't have been touched at all. It was very, very disdained. We were still under the optic and the influence of someone like a Norbert Dufourc. Uh, and of course, this music just, just wasn't tolerated in those circles. But, um, I mean, the, the, the mark of the age, the, the, the mantra of the age is diversity and uh, I, for one, am very happy to see that some of this music is coming back into the repertory. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, more, um, Dr. Esbach, about uh, what what kind of innovations, besides Barker, of course, machine and uh, expand, expanded, uh, for example, manual compasses, did Cavayacol uh, have at the beginning, for example, when you compare with... with at the beginning, with, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, of course, many of these things were announced to Saint-Denis because this was intended to be a show-off instrument, shall we say, an instrument to guide uh, future tastes. So a lot of innovations that that were manifest in Saint-Denis did not necessarily get built or included in smaller village organs um, that uh, came about. 
Um, but to to name off uh, some of the more significant innovations, uh, the Compass Allure C keyboard at Saint Denis is a four is a full uh, 54 note compass, which matches the Nacanto, Bombard, and uh, Positif. Uh, so um, that was somewhat innovative, but not the first time. Uh, mm-hmm. There was an instrument built by Amel in the 18, 1820s in Beauvais, which I think had a certain influence on Cavier Cole. And on that instrument, we find that, that uh, Amel's uh, Racy also had 54 notes in mm-hmm. the full compass. And so it's not exactly the first time it was done, but certainly in the Paris area, probably was was the very first to have a full mm-hmm. 54 note compass. And of course, enclosed in a swab box. Now there had been other uh, smaller instruments uh, up to that point that also had some swabs. But um, in any case, this was a slightly larger small division without 16 foot stops. Mm-hmm. I hasten to add, uh, enclosed in a small box. Then, of course, as you as you mentioned, the Barker uh, lover playing from the Cantorg, which allowed for uh, keyboards to be coupled and uh, still everything playable. Um, then we have uh, one of the first, uh, what, what the French call appel, A-P-P-E-L, or the, uh, we call it vental in this country, uh, Equipped on the positive division only, right? So uh, a large, a large chunk of the positive uh, keyboard, about half the stops, uh, were commanded by this appel, the spental, which simply means that it was a double pallet box, and uh, the stops that were on that double pallet box did not play until the appropriate pedal was activated. Uh, which then brought wind to that pallet box. Mm-hmm. And um, that pallet box was divided bass and treble so that you could um, just have the wind and the basses or just the, the wind and the trebles or the wind throughout the entire compass. So it's interesting that on that organ, it was just on the positive. But for the time being, it was it was just that one division at Saint-Denis. Mm-hmm. Um, also, of course, uh, harmonic troubles. Uh, Cavalier had been um, experimenting with harmonic troubles in, in his flutes and in some of the reeds. And his um, he, he states this very clearly, that by boosting the carrying power, uh, the solidity, as it were, of the troubles, he hoped that organists would not have to, what he felt was solely the troubles of the reeds by adding cornet stops. Exactly. Because yeah. of traditionally traditionally in France it was necessary to bolster uh, the troubles of the reeds by adding cornets and Cavalier felt that this detracted from the sonority, the overall sonority of the reed stops. So he intended by by bolstering those troubles to give them greater carrying power in the conquer uh, of the instrument. Um, and he largely succeeded, but uh, it's interesting that organists refused to give up the cornet stops. And uh, Cavier Cole seems to have been very happy to to continue to build them uh, or preserve them in many cases when, when he was working with older work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we can't say, we can't say that he, he ribbed the organ of the cornet because he absolutely did not. <clears throat> so those are some of the, the uh, more, shall we say, progressive uh, features of that organ. Um, it's also interesting to look at the more conservative features because, as I mentioned, this was a 32-foot montauk, uh, 
so you have one of the rare 32-foot plana uh, in, in France. So um, the Grand Plange was, was based on a 32-foot mall, and then a 16-foot, 8-foot, 4-foot, 2-foot, and then a series of four mixtures, the gross furniture, the, the gross sambal, and then the, the regular furniture and sambal. So it was quite an array, and of course the pleasure was then available also on the positive. So it's quite a splendid sound at Saint-Denis. Right. And of course, uh, uh, Dr. Esbach, um, uh, would, uh, would you say that his investigation into furnitures and uh, mixtures also uh, was a big part uh, in, in early work of Cavecol, or, or it l- happened later in his career? Well, he didn't, he didn't tamper with, with the concept of the plage or mixture compositions uh, until the middle of the century. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at this point, they are still very much the uh, compositions prescribed by Don Bedos. Right. Uh, so um, that's pretty much uh, how he laid them out. And it really wasn't until the later 1850s that he began to be influenced by German ideas and uh, began working with some of Merklund's ideas in terms of a progressive mixture that didn't mm-hmm. repeat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, uh, and that, uh, of course, uh, depends on the music being written also. The more chromatic music, uh, the, more, the more you need those probably uh, progressive mixtures, uh, and, and that's the sign of the later romanticism probably. Uh-huh. Well, yes, but also it's a question of registration, and... Um, Things registration habits in France uh, in the 1840s, 1850s, and and even beyond were still very much practiced from from the older periods, from the 17th and 18th century. And by that I mean that the integrity of the plan jeu and the integrity of the jeu, the two were never mixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, an, an organist in 1841 would never, ever have conceived of pulling all the stops on the organ. If you wanted to play the reeds at that point, of course, it was called a cancaire. And if you wanted a cancaire, you fashioned them with, with reeds and a certain number of foundations. But you never, ever employed mixtures in that composition. That doesn't happen really until the end of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. at at least across the board. There were people, there were organists experimenting with this, but uh, it did not happen uh, really uh, with any kind of systematization until the end of the 19th century, which is why Vidor's uh, Gothic symphony, the Symphony Gothique, uh, is so significant because at the beginning of the first movement he writes tutti and then he has to explain um, what his tutti means. It was a very, very uh, new concept even in 1895. So an organist playing a Saint-Denis, uh, a post-classical organist, never would have would have married those two choruses together. But the Plage-Rahmonique that begins uh, finding fashion in the middle of the century um, certainly one of the things that was being tried out, that plan jeu was, was probably more intended to be used in a, a big Greek chorus uh, to kind of put together, bring together the uh, classical plan jeu and the, the plan jeu. Mm-hmm. So Cavier Cole was very much in back of this. Cavier uh, Cole knew German organ building uh, very well. Uh, the tour that he did throughout Germany and other areas in 1844 was extremely influential 
uh, on Cavier Cole. And, of course, he found German organs, uh, because of the nature of their reeds, uh, they were able to, to add reeds to their plana. And he was bound and determined that French organists were, were going to be able to do the same thing. So that was a very, very big part of, of what he was trying to do later on in his work. So talking about his later career, um, uh, uh, with his um, maybe mature output, right? Uh, um, What's uh, what's the most significant monument comes to mind, uh, Dr. Rishbach, today? For for a later organ? Yes, for a later later organ. Well, I mean, there are several. It would be difficult to um, to put one over the other, but we're so fortunate that we have Saint-Sulpice intact. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, mo- the monumental organ of Saint-Sulpice with 100 stops, and that's essentially, um, with with few exceptions, that's essentially the organ that was created in 1862, which has been so carefully preserved under Vidor Dupre and now Daniel Roth. Um, and then I don't think you can mention those those last organs, the last period of his career, without talking about saint Ouen. Mm-hmm. in Rouen, which is exactly as as the builder left it. Uh, none of the stops have ever been changed. The action has never been changed. Uh, it's it's very, very much uh, intact. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I love to tell stories about that instrument because I've had so-called early music specialists uh, who play specialize, obviously, in 17th and, and uh, maybe some 18th century music, and they go to Saint-Ouen and they're so blown away with the experience that they, they come away saying, <laughs> I think I've been converted. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> it, it's a pretty interesting experience. It, it's simply a, a transcendental instrument. Yeah. Simply transcendental. Uh, and even uh, for a person who 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 didn't travel right uh, to that place uh, if 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 one uh, listens to the uh, supreme recording right uh, uh, by vidor or or Vierne symphonies right yeah. done in, in in that on that organ it's it's pretty obvious that it's it's something something very very different right and it's preserved is is totally. totally original and um, transforming experience Totally, totally. Mm-hmm. So it's it's so good that that this um, neo neo baroque uh, movement didn't go that far in that region, right? Uh, uh, that uh, nobody really changed that much on that organ, so that today we have a, a real monument of original Cavayacol still standing and sounding. Well, totally, and of course that's not the only one. We are very mm-hmm. fortunate that we have a, num- a number of, of monumental instruments uh, that are left intact. Mm-hmm. Um, the most the most severe changes, the most far-reaching changes, were done to the organs of Paris because that's where most of the money was. Mm-hmm. And although there there were some terrible things done out of the provinces uh, in, in France, uh, the work is, is um, well, it, it, it's... There's, let's just put it like this. There's more work left in the provinces than there is in Paris. Mm-hmm. One has to be very, very careful about organ tours. Uh, if you're wanting to hear Cavalier Cole from the 19th century, um, it's very fashionable now for every Parisian organist to call his instrument a, a Cavalier Cole, even though they have been so, in many instances, so overwhelmingly changed. Um, 
I don't know how you can go to the Madeleine, for instance, and, and call that a Cavier Cole. Um, it certainly has a basis of Cavier Cole, but, you know, I'm someone who, I guess I have different ideas. I think that um, a style of organ building is a number of um, systems, of organic systems that come together to define that style. And if you remove any one of those systems, it betrays the builder. Mm-hmm. So you can't electrify, you, you can't electrify an organ like the Madeleine or the Trinity or even the Dame. You, you can't go around electrifying these organs and playing with the mixtures and doing this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And if you say it's Cavier Cole, well, um, I think you better go on and say some more about it too, because it's not just Cavier Cole. Yes. And uh, it, it's, I just, I, I'm somewhat bemused, but also frustrated with uh, some of the Parisian organists who were kind of, in my optic, trading uh, on that name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just uh, this unstoppable desire to to play everything uh, uh, with everything, uh, everything, right on that instrument. Let's yeah, say uh, Notre Dame, or or uh, so. So you could yeah. go from pianissimo to fortissimo in split second, yeah. and and without any, yeah. uh, you know, mechanical uh, friction, and and um, yeah. that wasn't the case in Cavaillacol's time, was it? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. The action, the action, vo- the voicing, the stop lists, um, the winding, everything works together. That's mm-hmm. what comes together to build a monumental style, and everything works together. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to annoy any of my friends at Notre Dame, uh, and certainly uh, I applaud the work, all the work that Bertrand Catiot has done to that instrument. It's just sensational. Uh, what Katyo has been able to, to do with the organ, but at the same time, it still is an electric uh, console played from very much an Anglo-American uh, console. Yes. And uh, so I, I think it's going in all the right directions, but it, at the end of the day, uh, it's we we have trouble calling it pure Cavier Cole. I don't mm-hmm. think we can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was lost under under Pierre Cochereau, who had the organ uh, electrified and, and severely uh, rebuilt. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I said, my uh, I have the greatest res- respect for uh, the work of Bertrand Cartier mm-hmm. and the decisions the decisions that the uh, titular organists have, have made at, at Notre Dame. I, I was was blown away the last time I heard it. I just I could not believe the progress that that had been made. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of those titular organists, and because of those um, great organ builders who are working today, right? Uh, uh, maybe yeah. it's it's evolving. This instrument it's like a, a evolution of Cavaillacol, right? Yeah. Uh, not the yeah. original, no. but uh, something something uh, more than Cavaillacol. Not necessarily better, right? But something more, and. Um, that's what it will keep uh, um, the the interest for the general population, right, of music yeah. lovers, probably for yeah. ages to come, right, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. that's uh, that's uh, makes uh, the the monument of Cavaillacol immortal, basically, uh, for th- for the yeah. future generations. Mm-hmm. Although it's not original anymore, right? It's it's sort of more than than right. than. 
than original. So thank you so much, Dr. Eschbach. You, you've been so generous today and so enlightening in, in expanding our um, understanding of, of the ideas and the groundbreaking work that Aristide Kavayakol uh, uh, did at the beginning and later on in his career. And of course, people around the world are dying to know how to find out more about you and your work. Can you share uh, the link with them, please? Um, yes, uh, I have most everything on the university website, um, and this is a little bit embarrassing because the address of that website has recently uh, shifted, uh, in other words, changed, mm -hmm. and I do not think I have that new address in mind. If I can get back to you sure, sure, sure. Uh, some way with an updated the updated address, but uh, if the person were to Google uh Oregon UNT, they would find it uh, immediately, and then I will be back in touch with you and give you the exact uh, link. Great. Uh, I'll make sure it, um, when you when you give me the the link, I will add into the description of this conversation so that people could literally click Perfect. and visit the place. And uh, uh, how can our uh, listeners um, uh, find your book, for example, on the stop list of Kawaii the, the book, uh, the last I knew, the, the book is uh, still available at Amazon, mm -hmm. and you can go to the you can go to the publisher's uh, website, and that is Peter Avers, P E T E R, and then Avers is spelled E W E R S, and I think if you na uh, navigate through that website, uh, you can get it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it is available. I should say that I'm working on a second edition. I have no idea. I'm not promising a date on the second edition, but, um, I, uh, there, there's so much, uh, new information mm -hmm. and, uh, new sources available on the subject that, uh, I'm revising the entire book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Your 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 work is so tremendously valuable, and uh, of course, the second edition is so so important because um, people are really, uh, when doing any kind of research, uh, talking about Kavayakol or the French culture, they really cannot uh, go without uh, cannot go deeper into the subject without your expertise, Doctor Esbach. And for that, we are well, deeply you. grateful. So thank you so much and have a tremendous success the, for the next year. Merry Christmas and uh, stay thank healthy. You. Merry Christmas to you. Merry thank Christmas you. to you. Thank and you. thank you so much. And I look, look forward to staying abreast of everything that you do. Thank you so much, Dr. Rishbach. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.